This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. I'm David Weston, and welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Best. We had a pair of important conversations this week from the world of finance and of central banking. Later this hour, we'll hear from Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. I spoke with him on Tuesday after BAC released earnings. First up, though, on Thursday, Fed Chair Jay Powell spoke at the Economic Club of New York. He suggested the U.S. Central Bank is inclined to hold interest rates steady again at its next meeting while leaving open the possibility of a future hike. Given the uncertainties and risks, and given how far we've come, the committee is proceeding carefully. We will make decisions about the extent of additional policy firming and how long policy will remain restrictive based on the totality of the incoming data, the evolving outlook, and the balance of risks. After his remarks, he joined me for a fireside chat. Here's part of that conversation. Are you surprised? at how resilient the United States economy is. We got jobless claims numbers, surprised because they were low. We got the retail sales numbers you mentioned. We got industrial production. Across the board, it seems like a very strong economy, despite all you've done to try to slow it down. Yes, so uh, we certainly have a very uh, uh, resilient economy on our hands. We've got uh, the economy growing strongly. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the U.S. economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year above its longer run trend. So that's been a surprise, driven largely by uh, consumer spending, driven by a very strong job market with uh, people getting jobs with high, first high nominal wages, and then as inflation has come down, real wages, which is spurring spending. And we've also had inflation coming down. So, you know, uh, that's, it, it really is a story of much stronger demand. There may also be, there may be some ways in which the economy is um, less affected by interest rates. Uh, it's hard to know precisely, but for example, companies, many companies, any company with bond market access will have termed out its debt, right? And therefore may not be feeling the effects of higher rates. The same may be true of homeowners who have a, a long-term fixed rate, low rate mortgage, who then are therefore not, because it's not an adjustable rate or a higher rate, they're not, they're not feeling that increase in rates. So the, the economy may be somewhat less uh, susceptible to the effects of rate increases. On the other hand, if you look at um, look at interest-sensitive spending, these are very much the the, the, um, the places where we see we, where we expect to see and do see effects. So, for example, in um, in housing or in you know the housing sector has been sector has been very affected by higher rates as purchases of, of uh, durable goods. If you look at surveys, people will not say that it's a good time to buy a car or a house. Quite the contrary. So we see policy working through its usual channels. It may just be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough. And, and again, it's all happening in a context of, of very strong demand. We've heard other people speculate maybe the terming out of debt, as you say, both corporate debt and household debt, may diminish the effectiveness of rate hikes. Do you have a view on whether that's true? And if it is true, what does it say about monetary policy? Does it mean you have to go farther in the rate hikes, or do you just not have the power to affect it? So no, I, I don't think that, that there's a, um, a fundamental shift in the way that interest rates affect the economy. There may be some differences in this cycle because of what I mentioned. 
Um, I, as I mentioned, you, we are seeing those, the effects where we expect to see them, which is interest-sensitive spending and also asset prices to some extent, uh, and the exchange rate, which you're also seeing a uh, strong exchange rate, which is, which is disinflationary. So I don't think there's a, a fundamental change in the way monetary policy affects the economy. And again, it goes back to just very strong demand. We take the economy as it is. We take fiscal policy and the economy and all the things we don't control, they come to us and we conduct policy always to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. So we just t take what comes. The fact that we have a strong growing economy, a strong growing labor market, and uh, you know, inflation coming down, these are the elements that we want to, to see that, to achieve the, the outcome we want. It may take more time, but ultimately, uh, those are, that's, this is the kind of thing you would want to see along the path to getting through this without a big increase in unemployment. How much effect thus far has the Fed had? Uh, we, we all have memorized now long and variable lags. How long and how variable? And where are you in that process? Are you at the 25% point, the 50% in terms of seeing it in the effect in the real economy? So there's, there's no precision in, the, uh, in, in our understanding of, of how long lags are. Um, one thing that has changed in the modern era is that markets now uh, over the course of the last 30 years, central banks have decided instead of being secretive to be very transparent. And what that has meant is that markets move actually well in anticipation, well before our policy moves. So the transmission from policy moves to, to financial conditions actually happens before the moves now, whereas that was not the case 50 years ago when Milton Friedman you know, coined the phrase long and variable lags. So, but now you have financial conditions changing and the question is how does it affect the economy? The standard channels are uh, asset prices, interest sensitive spending and the exchange rate, for example. And we, again, we do see that happening just not as fast as we would like. And I would attribute some of that to just stronger demand. You know, household savings were, were turned out to be higher. Household spending has been stronger, and that's by far the largest part of the economy. In order to conduct monetary policy effectively, do you need at least a hypothesis about how much has already hit the economy? Because it's hard to know how much more you need to do if you don't know how far you've come. So on, on lags, I think if you think back, it's been a year since, now since, since the last 75 basis point hike we did. It was at the November meeting in 2022. The first one was in June, so it's more than a year. So we should be seeing the effects by the way, they don't all just arrive on one day. They, they arrive and then they're thought to peak and then to diminish. So there's a lot of uncertainty around lags. Um, and one of the reasons why we have slowed down significantly this year is to give monetary policy time to work. The truth is, though, you can find academic support for different, different speeds of, and, and duration of lags. So we have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects. And I think, again, that's, that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we, were, we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we needed to be, and now we're moving carefully with these decisions. Uh, so when you spoke back in August of 2020 and sort of laid out the revisions to the framework, as it were, uh, you said that in terms of anticipated growth, the sort of consensus had gone from something like 2.5 to 1.8 percent, I think were the numbers you laid out in that. Where are you now? Where's the Fed? Where are you and what you think basically the long-run growth is? Long-run potential growth um, is not something that moves around a lot over time, but I would, my, my own guess is it's around 2 percent. I think that the, the standard 
mainstream view would be a little bit below 2%, but I would just say 2% real growth uh, over time. And you know, what, what causes growth is you know, growth in hours worked plus growth in productivity. Growth in hours worked is, is a function of population growth in the long run and also labor force participation. Many things affect productivity, but if you, if you drop in reasonable standard longer term estimates of hours worked growth and productivity, which is just output per hour, productivity growth, you get something around 2%, and that's, that's higher than most other advanced economies. As you look at it, uh, do you see historical precedents for having a growing economy with high rates over a long period of time? I mean, as you look back, I mean, is it like the late 90s, for example? What, do you, what, what analogies do you draw as you try to determine what this might be doing to the economy over the longer term? So that, that's really a question about what the, what, the, what the level of rates will be going forward, what the neutral level will be. And I think it's, it's very hard to know confidently what the answer to that will be in five years. Some of the reasons why rates were low for the last 25 years were just uh, the aging of the global population and globalization and you know so lots of savings and relatively uh, with an aging population savings greater than investment so rates are lower and productivity was low so all of those led to low interest rates so what has changed with the pandemic you might see less effects from globalization certainly demographics that the aging of the global population has not changed um, I mean this is a discussion we're having on an ongoing basis it doesn't really affect current policy but where will rates settle out? What will be a, a normal rate? So if, if, the, if a typical Fed tightening cycle would leave you at five or six percent, and, and this is, this is in the, before the pandemic and before this, the low inflation period, you would have had, had uh, Fed rates in four or five percent or even higher frequently. Are we going back to that? I really don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. I mean, my guess is it'll be somewhere in the middle, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we can say this now. Uh, the effect of lower bound, is not an issue. You know, we were, we were very concerned about that. Right now, we're very far from the effect of lower bound, and the economy's handling it just fine. But that's, you know, that's because we're at a time of, of really elevated demand uh, coming out of the pandemic as we reopened with fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. We have very strong demand in the United States. Hard to know what, what the economy will want in the way of interest rates when, when five years from now, when all of the effects of the pandemic are behind us. That's Fed Chair Jay Powell. I talked with him on Thursday at the Economic Club of New York. Coming up, the conversation continues with a focus on bonds and whether or not the market is doing some of his work for him. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is a special edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm David Weston. Still to come this hour, my discussion with Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan about the future of his bank. Frankly, the Fed has won the battle with the American consumer and, just, and they're slowing down. And then the question is, what happens next? I can't predict, but this, this is a $4 trillion base, three to $400 billion a month. So think about it. It's hard to move around a lot. So once it slows this level, it's probably not going to kick right back up. But first, more of my conversation with Fed Chair Jay Powell. On Thursday, he gave remarks at the Economic Club of New York. And afterward, we sat down for a fireside chat. I suspect every person in this room is well aware of what's going on with yields with bonds. Uh, it's been a big story, particularly in the longer end of the curve. What is your understanding of what is going on in the bond market and why those yields are going up, particularly, again, at the longer end of the curve? 
So it's really, uh, it's really two questions. One is why is it happening, and, and the other is why does it matter for policy? And so I would say on the why is it happening question, I think it's appropriate to have a little bit of humility. It's always hard to say exactly what's going on with longer-term yields, but, but this is what I think we can say. First, what it's not. It's not apparently about expectations of higher inflation, and it's also not mainly about shorter-term policy moves, so Fed funds moves over the next year or two. Really, if you, you can look at the two-year, for example, and two years moved up a little bit since September, but really the move is in longer-run bonds. So it's really happening in term premiums, which is the compensation for holding longer-run securities, and not principally a function of the market looking at, at, at near-term fund rate. I think other, uh, other, a few other ideas about, there are many candidate ideas, and, uh, and many people feeling their priors have been confirmed by this event, I'll say, as well. <laughs> But um, so one would be just that uh, markets and analysts are seeing the resilience of the economy to high interest rates, and they're, they're revising their view about the, the overall strength of the economy and thinking even longer term this may require higher rates. That could be part of it. Uh, you know, there may be a heightened focus on fiscal deficits. That could be part of it. QT could be part of it. Uh, another one you hear very often is the change, changing correlation between bonds and equities. If we're going forward into, if we are going forward into a world of more supply shocks rather than demand shocks, that could make bonds a, a less attractive hedge to equities, and therefore you need to be paid more to own bonds, and therefore the term premium goes up. So all, all of those uh, uh, are, are possible ideas. Then, then the question is, does it matter for us? As long as I'm talking about this, so um, the way I think about it is, uh, you know, we change our policy. Actual and expected changes in our policy affect uh, financial conditions, and persistent changes in financial conditions affect economic activity, hiring, and inflation. So one question is, are we seeing the longer-run bonds, are they the increases in, in rates, are we seeing those come through in financial conditions in a persistent way? And I think if you look at financial conditions indexes, the answer so far would be yes, you are. Uh, persistence, it will be a matter of, of, of just seeing with our own eyes, but certainly they're coming, if you look at financial conditions indexes, they're showing tightening and it's a lot because of longer rates. Then the question is, is it endogenous? And is it just, is it just because the market expects us to take things, to, to, to take further actions to, to, uh, to tighten monetary policy, in which case if you have to follow through. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It, it, is, it doesn't seem to be principally about expectations of us doing more. It seems to, that the other factors are the more, uh, the more prominent ones. Bottom line, though, that, that means it probably does over time. It makes sense. It's something that we'll be looking at. Well, that, that's the question I was asking, is yeah. over time. It, it, from what you understand right now, do you think this is a temporary phenomenon, or do you think there are structural factors, whatever they are, and we can talk about what they might be, that would really, are, uh, this is the future that we're looking at now? Well, so of, of the factors I just listed, some of them are shorter term, some of them are longer term, and some of them could be either. So, for example, concerns over fiscal deficits, uh, that, that could be a longer-term factor. The, the, the change in, in correlations between stocks and bonds could be a long-term. I, I don't think we know. I think, um, you know, basically bond prices are set by supply and demand. The supply of, of treasuries is, is, a, is a known thing, but demand can be affected by any and all of these theories and also just by sentiment, sentiment too, which is hard to characterize. So, you know, markets have been volatile. They've been uh, longer, you, you know, you've seen the uh, rates moving up and down a lot. 
I think we have to let this play out and watch it. Uh, but we, you know, for now, it, it looks, it's, it's clearly a tightening in financial conditions, and so we'll be watching it carefully. Talking about the fiscal side, and you've been very careful repeatedly to say you want to stay in your lane, you're not responsible for fiscal issues. At the same time, you have to take into account and it looks like the United States is going to have to borrow a fair amount of money. By the way, other countries are as well around the world. We have a, a, big, a big supply of treasuries coming on board. Uh, to what extent do you think that is a longer-term issue? And let me tie it back to something you referred to in your remarks, actually. When we see geopolitical conflict around the world, like in Israel, like in Ukraine, some of the buildup with respect to China, the defense spending is going to be elevated for the United States and for other countries. Do you take that into account in figuring monetary policy? Because it may well mean that we're borrowing a lot more money than we have in the past. So we, of course, see the same, same things that everyone else. I just came back from IMF meetings this weekend, and there's a lot of talk of the very large resource demands that organizations like the IMF and, of course, countries are facing, and the need for substantial amounts of revenue. You mentioned military. There's also dealing with, with climate change and things like that. So it's a, there, there's a lot of that. Um, we don't, as you mentioned, we don't comment on, on uh, fiscal policy. Actually, the fiscal authorities have oversight over us and not the other way around. So we, we stay away from that. Um, so I, I, I would just say everyone knows that it's not a secret. And about all I can say is we know that we're on an unsustainable path fiscally. It's not that the level of the debt is unsustainable. It's not. It's that where the path we're on is unsustainable, and we'll have to get off that path sooner rather than later. It's not really something, though, that affects a, a monetary policy decision about whether how much we raise rates in the next six months. It's not, it's not going to be driven by... Um, uh, it, I mean, if there were some vast new fiscal policy that were about to be enacted, then that, that would have an effect on the models and would have an effect on projections and indirectly that would affect us. But we would not be in a position of responding directly to fiscal policy. When we talk about the treasury market, obviously there's, there's buying and selling. Uh, and the United States government is issuing a lot of treasuries. There's also a question of who's buying. And we're, we now have one buyer who stepped out of the marketplace, namely the Fed, which is a big buyer. Uh, at the same time, we're getting reports that maybe some of the overseas buyers uh, may be pulling back as well. How do you take that into account in, in, in assessing where we're going with long-term bond yields? So actually, um, uh, I think buying by overseas uh, entities has actually been pretty robust this year. So there have been some small changes, but I think by and large, it's been, it's, they've, they've been buying uh, you know, robustly. Again, we look, at, we look at the broad financial conditions. We look at interest rates, other asset prices. That's what we look at. We're not, we, we're not um, you know, we don't focus on fiscal policy. We wouldn't change monetary policy because of, uh, for example, it, uh, you know, because we think that the U.S. is on an unsustainable path. Everyone knows that. Uh, we're just going to do monetary policy to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. Uh, and that's how we think about it. That's part of my conversation with Fed Chair Jay Powell from the Economic Club of New York on Thursday. For the full discussion, listen to the podcast. It's available on the Bloomberg Talks podcast feed. Get it wherever you download. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best. Coming up, I speak with Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. We'll discuss his company's latest earnings report and how the Fed has won the battle of the American consumer. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm David Weston. On Tuesday, Bank of America reported earnings helped by traders reporting their best third quarter results in more than a decade. And the lender continued to reap the benefits of Federal Reserve rate hikes in higher than expected net interest income. After the report, I spoke with the bank's chair and CEO, Brian Moynihan. You beat across the board. You surprised everybody across the board. Congratulations on that. But let me ask about what comes next, because I noticed that you gave a bit of guidance into 2024. Recently, you've been doing it quarter by quarter. Do you feel like you have a little more visibility into the future than you have in the past? Yeah, yes, David, thank you. So the team did a great job this quarter, $7.8 billion of earnings year to date, uh, $23 billion plus in earnings, a return on tangible common equity of 15% this quarter, uh, market share growth and a bunch of business organic growth around the company. But what gives us confidence to think of it? You're talking mostly about NII in terms of future guidance. If you think about it, where we see, we, we said we'd do 14.2 billion in the third quarter this year. We did 14.5 billion. We said we'd hold in, at 14 billion for the fourth quarter. And what we told people is as you look forward, given the, uh, the rate, curve, the forward rate curve, what's going to happen rates, we see that 14 billion plus or minus bouncing along for a couple quarters and it's starting to grow from that. Why has that happened? We've seen you know, our deposit base in the, in the commercial businesses start to grow again after six quarters of basically being flat. We see it in the wealth management business for the last few months basically running steady at about 295 billion. And we see in the consumer business uh, a little spend down the accounts on some of the core side, but overall uh, outperforming the market. And that's a very valuable base with $500 billion of checking in it. So that says that $1.9 trillion of pods we have are good. The loans flat this quarter, but good growth on consumer, which frankly has uh, more yield to it. So we expect that. And as that comes together, we we'd expect to see NII sort of pick up in the second half of the year. Um, and that coupled with the expense discipline we have uh, is a good path forward. Uh, Brian, talk about that deposit base, which is so important for net interest income. Uh, you added, I think it was like 200,000 new checking accounts and a million credit cards, a million one credit cards. Where are those coming from? Are you taking uh, market share from someplace or just more people coming to the market? How, where are they coming from? Well, we, we do really well with young, uh, the, the consumer business, the American business, but we do really well with young Americans. And so we keep adding uh, a higher percentage of accounts uh, for young people. And so it just, it comes from America. And so it is a taking market. These are primary checking accounts in the household, 92% plus average balance, about you know 10,000 uh, in them. Uh, so it's a very strong checking base, and that that account growth of 900,000 for the last four quarters, a million uh, in the four quarters before that. Those numbers are net growing to 37 million Americans use our company for their core consumer checking business, and that's a great. But a great group of customers, high customer satisfaction, high employee satisfaction in that area, and it all works, and it produces a $980 billion of deposits in consumer. Brian, in the past you've talked about the non-interest-bearing accounts, the deposits you have that you don't have to really pay interest on. I wonder about that. You seem to be doing a bit better than maybe your competitions does. Do you have some pressure? Because as you see those rates go up, you must have some people at least on the margin saying, you know what, I can get some interest someplace. And they did. And that's why our deposits have moved down. You know, so if you think about our wealth management business, they probably peaked at 
50, $60 billion higher, and a lot of that money moved to the market. Customers at Merrill Lynch are holding the highest amount of cash and treasuries and things that they've held up three or $400 billion over the last couple of years, and that money is waiting to come back in the market when things stabilize. So, and that business happened. In the commercial business, you saw that go out, and then you saw it build back, and that's starting to grow again at the $500 billion left. And the consumer, the higher, the consumers that have investment cash, cash that they don't need to conduct their day-to-day operations, they have moved that into the into the higher-yielding savings accounts or even in the market. And so if you look at the upper uh, levels of deposit, average deposit balances in you know, 50,000, 60,000 and above, those are actually down from the pand- pre-pandemic. And the reason why is that money went in the market. It didn't disappear. They just moved it to other things. The core transaction base is coming in and out. The paycheck comes in every two weeks or every week or every month. It goes through, pays all the bills, and then comes in again. That That is really hard to position because my position and my bills go through and I don't have the cash in the account. So it's a different business. And it's a business which we do for companies and wealthy people and consumers. But it's a big consumer business for us. And it continues to grow and grow well. So, so, Brian, you have such a vantage point into the consumers across the country, and you said that, that you're starting to see that slow some as we go into the end of the year. Do you have any expectations through the end of the year into 2024? Will it continue to slow? So let's think about two or three things there. One is just what are the consumers doing with the money they have in their accounts? And in a given year, uh, we ha- will have $4 trillion that will be spent by our consumers on debit card, credit card purchases, Zelle payments, uh, checks written, money out of the ATMs, and all the different forms they spend it. Uh, that $4 trillion from in 21 to 22 grew at 9%. Year to date for the first four or five months of the year, I would have been telling you in the second quarter, it's still growing strong at like 8%. It's now down to 4 to 5% in the year to date and about 4 4.5% in the month of September and in the month of October consistent with that. The consumer has been slowing down their spending because interest rates take a toll because as rates went up on their floating rate loans, their home equity loans or other things that float credit cards or frankly new car purchases, the rates are higher. Though There are mortgages getting done, those rates are higher. That slows down their, the restart of student loans. All those slow down their ability to spend on other things. They have to shift spending around. And on top of that, frankly, they're, they're looking ahead and say, hey, I hear things are going to be bouncing around a little bit. I'll spend a little less. And then the third thing is, they take, you know, they bought the, the goods they bought during COVID. They bought the, you know, the new couch and stuff. They don't need to buy another one now. They take them to trips, and now they're back into their core activity. And so, as you put all that together, it's slowed by half. And what is spending rate at uh, the year-over-year growth is consistent with two percent inflation and below two percent GDP growth. It is the same. That rate of four percent or so is what we had in 17, 18, and 19, as the economy kind of ended, ended into an equilibrium. So, frankly, the Fed has won the battle with the American consumer, and, just, and they're slowing down. And then the question is, what happens next? I can't predict, but this this is a four trillion dollar base, three to four hundred billion dollars a month. So think about it. It's hard to move around a lot. So once it slows this level, it's probably not going to kick right back up. So, Brian, how much of a vantage point do you have into where the, the consumer, the household stands? Because there was a lot of talk about essentially excess savings come out of the pandemic because a lot of the checks that were being written to individuals and the dry powder, if you will, and drawing down on it. Do you have a sense of how much has been drawn down on it? And a second question is, to what extent is real wage increase maybe replacing some of that? Well, that's that's the thing. So if you look, look, inflation's tough 
especially on median income households uh, in terms of goods and services are higher part of goods are a harder part of what they buy. Groceries are a bigger number. Gas prices are a bigger number. And it's very difficult. And that's what the pressure you see in some of the consumer sentiment. It, that's one issue. But if you look at it in a broad aggregate sense, what you see with this kind of spending rate is a consumer is healthy. If you look in the accounts, uh, especially in the accounts, median income, 75000 and under, av- that had average balances before the pandemic, there's still multiples, but they're trickling down. And so the rumors that they were going to be spent down by this Christmas of 22 is what people were saying last year. They're going to be overspent. Didn't happen. Then it was going to happen by early this year. Didn't happen. When it was going to happen by the fall this year. Didn't happen. And now it's starting to happen slowly. And it, but at, that, at this rate, it'll still be many more months. The thing about that is, you pointed out, is for the first couple of years after the pandemic, the wages rose quickly and then inflation caught up. And if you look at multi-years, it's more in sync. Recently, it's upside down and the wage growth has slowed down as employers have been more conservative and, and the the great resignation's gone out of the system. So you're kind of at an equilibrium across multiple years. Right now, you feel more upside down. And then by income strata, it's a little different. And that will then slow the consumer down. That's what we're seeing. From what you've seen, are you anticipating more delinquencies and defaults as we get into 2024 on the consumer side? We, we, we have seen the, you know, the early stage delinquencies in consumer are, are below where they were in 19. And the problem with saying that is we say they're normalized in 19. Everything's, oh, my gosh. The reality is 2019, I think, was like a 40-year low in delinquencies and charge-offs in our company's history. So we're, we're normalizing to a level that is very low. The consumer is still very strong. The delinquency and charge-off rates in the car business, in the, you know, in, in the mortgage business, we have no charge-offs. Home equity have recoveries. It's, you know, the auto business, we're a prime lender. We have a, billion, a trillion dollars of loans, and we continue to drive that growth. But we've always been a prime lender. The consumer side, that's half our portfolio. And the commercial side, we're a very good commercial lender. So whether it's, you know, wherever it is, the consumer is in very good shape in terms of because they're employed and earning money, it's hard to delinquencies are normalizing because out of the pandemic they went really low and there was all the special programs and student loan deferrals and all, the, all that went on. They're normalizing, but they're normalizing to a place that's still very low. And so the charge-offs continue to come up a little bit, but to a number that we used to charge off every quarter and nobody asked about, I think it was great results. That's Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best. Coming up, the conversation continues. We touch on the war in Israel and the turmoil in Washington. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is a special edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm David Weston. We continue now with my conversation with Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. I spoke with him after his bank reported earnings on Tuesday. Brian, finally, a couple of broader questions here. We're all mindful of what's going on right now in the Middle East with Israel and Hamas. And that's after Ukraine. There was a lot of geopolitical conflict around the world. Does that affect your business at Bank of America? How do you internalize that? How do you uh, adjust to that, if at all? We have teammates in Israel. And so the first thing we do is have to make sure our teammates are safe. And, and more broadly across our 200,000 teammates, other teammates have relatives uh, and, and family that were, that were hurt in the initial attack. And, you know, so it's a tough situation. But that's where we always go first, stabilize, make sure our teammates are getting all the support they can have. Then we do work with humanitarian organizations to provide broader relief. But if you think about it more from the volatility in the markets and more from the outcome, it, you know, look, you've got you know, wars on two 
places going now. And these are all, this adds the volatility and adds the movement in the markets and adds the day-to-day -day movement. But at the end of the day, these are you know, huge human crises going on that we, you know, we, we hope solve. Uh, we aren't sure they will, but we have to run the company given that we got to be ready for anything that comes at us. And geopolitical risk is a major risk for the company faces on a given day. And as you say so correctly, it's first and foremost a humanitarian tragedy, really, a, a horror going on. This is not so much a humanitarian tragedy, but what's going on in Washington right now? Same question. Is it affecting you? Because we're looking at the prospect of possibly a government shutdown again in November, and they seem to have some dysfunction. And that's a political issue. That's not your job. But could it affect the economy? Could it affect Bank of America? The government running smoothly is sort of an assumed outcome you know, in the United States. And anything that gets in the way of that is not, is not a good thing. And so the ebbs and flows of uh, the needs for funding and operations shutting down or threatening to shutting down, no, that's good. And everybody knows that. And that's why they keep trying to figure out ways to move it down the road and have the political argument they want to have about the policies embedded in those budgets, which are, you know, that's what, they, that's what they're there for. They're supposed to have those arguments. But you want the rest of the bank, the rest of the operations. You've got millions of federal employees are affected by it. So we approach... The, a government shutdown, the many that have occurred over time that we've been around, because we've been around since 1784, so this is not a new concept for us. But we've approached it the same way we approach any other disaster. First, the employees of the government, we waive fees and payments and everything to make sure they're fine. And then we basically then try to work to ensure that we have the risk covered. We have to worry about you know, impact on markets. And so we analyze that, we get ready for it, and we have teams that are ready to go at any given moment. Anything that has the United States not be the most stable place on earth is just not a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, but you have to divorce the real political process away from the operations, which we just need the government to be paying its bills and functioning. And they can have the argument over size of budgets and everything. That's what, that's what they're supposed to do. But we need to make sure that we don't have an accident on the other side. And that's the thing we've got to be careful of. Well, when you mention stability, I really am mindful of what's been going on with actually yields in the bond market, which has been pretty volatile recently for all sorts of the reasons that you identified, actually, including geopolitical. Is that something that we should be concerned about the degree of volatility in the bond market? You know, it's, you've had guests talking about it in a day-to-day. -day. It moves, you know, if you don't like it today, look tomorrow <laughs> as, the weather, as like the statement about the New England weather because, the, you know, it was 480, almost 5, then down to 460, and then back up to 480 and up today. So it bounces around. But that's just the ebb and flows of people in the market trying to figure out, you know, the day-to-day -day trading. Longer term, you know, the Fed is going to hold rates higher for longer. What our team, Candace Browning Platt and the team with the great research team, believe that the cuts they have in their models are two, next, two or three next year and four the year after. So that's 175 basis points off of the level it is now, still above four. That is higher for longer. And that's what the market's adjusting for. You're going to have a real rate curve. And we, anybody that's under the age of 40-something wasn't around <laughs> pre-global financial crisis when the rate structure was higher. A 3% Fed's funds rate is more normal than what we went through from 2010 till, uh, uh, till 19, and it never got up to that level. And in fact, at the end of 19, if you remember, the Fed started cutting rates to push economy. So they're mindful of the impact. But the idea is to have you know, inflation at target as opposed to longing for it, which is what many Fed governors had, or many Fed uh, chairs had to do, and many central bankers on the world, they kept saying, oh, if only we had inflation. You know, now you have it. Now you've got to manage it down, but you've got to be careful you don't overshoot. That's Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. That's it for this special edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm David Weston. Stay with us. Top stories and global news headlines are coming up right now.